Hey everybody, welcome back to Noggin Notes. Thanks for downloading our content again. Today I have with me Jared Perkins. He's a good friend and he is doing some really cool stuff in the mental health realm across the country. I live in the West. He lives in Washington, D.C. And I'm excited to talk to him about his endeavors. He also works with an organization called Major League University. And we've had uh, Austin Byler from Major League University on this podcast before. He's another wonderful human being doing wonderful things. And together, Jared and Austin and uh, their uh, buddy and partner, Ray McIntyre, are uh, bringing some really cool opportunities. So Jared's going to talk about all that, too, as well as some of his writing that has to do with baseball and mental health and career changes and all sorts of transition stuff. I think it's a it was a really good conversation. I was happy to have it, and it's always nice to see a good friend from across the you know, four time zones away. So uh, thanks to Jared for showing up. As always, our program is brought to you by Zephyr Wellness, a company that I own here in northern Nevada. We're happy to continue bringing this kind of content to people because we want to work ourselves out of a job. I wish you all great mental wellness, and I hope you share this around, give us a rating and a review, and help continue pushing this out so people get healthy, and I don't have to do this anymore someday. Enjoy my interview with Jared. Another lovely day and another lovely Noggin Notes podcast, and if it sounds like I'm laughing, it's because this is take two, because <laughs> I, I tripped over those words the first time. Joining me is a very good friend of mine, Jared Perkins. Hello, Jared. Hey, how are you doing? Good to see you. I'm better now that I can speak straight and don't get tongue-tied <laughs> on my intro. So, Jared, as you probably heard on my introduction, is a health policy analyst and uh, researcher, and he uh, he and I met through playing rec- Recreation League Baseball here in northern Nevada. When he was living here, he worked for uh, then-U.S. Senator Harry Reid. Uh, God rest his soul. He just passed away recently. And... Um, and you were doing health stuff back then, and then you moved to uh, Washington, D.C., got a really cool job with a really cool company, and now you have another cool job with a different cool company. And I want you to talk a little bit about that uh, for sure to kind of frame it for people, but then we're going to get into the topic of what you're doing now on the side, which I think is yeah. super, super fun. So introduce yourself. Yeah, so I have been in Washington, D.C. for now over, wow, five years. That's Feels like I just got here not too long ago. Um, but so I started working at an organization called the Alliance for Health Policy, which basically hosts briefings and informational sessions for members of Congress, their staff, and tries to inform them on different health policy issues. Uh, they wound up working at the Rand Corporation, uh, where I worked in our congressional relations office and tried to help our researchers uh, promote evidence-based research um, on different kind of health policy topics. And now, now I work in a on federal and state policy um, for community health centers. So we try to advocate for ways that community health centers can um, see more patients, increase access to care for those who are on Medicaid, who are on Medicare and just are, don't have health insurance. So health centers see patients regardless of their uh, insurance status. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of a bit of a background on the policy side. It's a, it's neat work that you're doing, particularly now, because community health centers are not well known, I think, by the public broadly. They're known in very small circles within the healthcare community. And even within the healthcare community, I don't think people really understand what they do. But they're, they're essentially comprehensive centers that do lots of things from primary care to dentistry to pharmacy to behavioral health to um, dietary to all sorts of exercise. Um a rehab work it's they're really really cool and like you said they don't turn anybody away and yeah i'm 
you know, Zephyr, I'm proud that Zephyr, we don't turn anybody away because we use graduate students to do that, but graduate students are unpaid and they're, they're few and far between. And uh, these, these places, these community health centers do much more than, than what we do. And they actually get to pay their staff, which is super cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's, it's, the, it's the integrated care model that we've talked about on this show a couple of times. Patrick Rogers was on at one point mm-hmm. talking about it. And um, it's very exciting. I think that's the direction that healthcare needs to go for sure. Um, getting there is, is a challenge. It requires money. Yeah. It requires you know some, some people coming to the table with the money to make it happen. And it's, it can't all just be printed federal dollars unless we go – full-blown you know socialist health care which you know i mean maybe that's that's where it's headed but um but it's exciting because i think it gives the patient a really comprehensive experience you don't have to worry about driving across town to your other practitioner they're all under one roof so i i love it i think it's it's cool what you're doing yeah and i think that well one place that i think of even though it wasn't a health center in nevada was the sanford center for aging where they would have everybody come in the, you'd have your dietitian there. You'd have the geriatrician there. You'd have a behavioral health, a certified behavioral health professional there as well. And then someone to talk to the patient about uh, their prescriptions. So someone who could, they wouldn't, they, I don't think they could pick up their prescriptions there, but they had a professional there that could go over like how to take their medication. And so, and when you think about seniors trying to get around from place to place is really difficult. And so the fact that they had that all in one place was pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Dr. Mordecai Levy was on the show and he mm. uh, talked about that. I totally forgot. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'd forgotten that Sanford does what they do. They're uh, that's cool. Yeah, and they, and they focus on the on the elderly, but uh, but that's not why we're here. We're here to talk about what you're doing as your new uh, your side hustle, if you will. Even though I don't, yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's a hustle if you <laughs> if you're not getting paid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell, tell us more about that. Yeah, so uh, I've worked for an organization I'm doing writing and podcasting and uh, for an organization called Major League University. A mutual friend of ours, Austin Byler, runs that with Ray McIntyre. And so the whole goal of Major League University is to uh, teach young athletes the mental skills side of the game and just help, help provide them mental skills, not just for the game of baseball, but for life as well. Um, And so I've been writing a lot about the intersection of mental health and sports, um, kind of like the baseball is kind of going through this mental health crisis now um, where a lot of more athletes are coming out about issues that they're dealing with um, just because of the the pressures that the game can put on the athletes. And so trying to shed a light on the human side of the game, uh, share these stories about players trying to find their identity in baseball, some of the the mental health battles that they go through while they're playing the game and just kind of, uh, talk more about like the human behind the athlete. You and I are, uh, some years apart and, uh, the, the generation gap is noticeable in baseball because when I, so I graduated high school in 1996, there, there was basically no such thing as travel ball. Now mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't play baseball. I did track and field, but then I picked it back up as an adult, which is how we met. But my brother did. And my brother graduated only three years behind me, and there was travel ball, but it was local. There were club teams that you would play, and we called it summer ball. And sometimes there was fall ball, but it was summer fall. There was no like yeah. year-round club travel ball. You have a very different experience. You graduated, what, 05? Uh, I was 09 from high 09. school. 09, okay. Yeah. So 10 years between my brother and you, and travel ball exploded. Now, my question to you, because you – 
experience that you see it now in the youth i know austin does and austin and ray could speak more to this and we'll we'll have him back on at some other point in time um the pressures that you're talking about i didn't see i didn't yeah. feel them nobody talked about them and my brother did now he played some some uh interseason ball and uh the reason he didn't he had an opportunity to continue into college and the reason he didn't was because uh he was he was burned out his knees hurt uh, he played on a not particularly well-run team with a coach who was not particularly supportive, kind of an angry individual. And he's just like, no, I'm not, I'm done. I don't want to make baseball my life 11 months out of the year going to the college. I want to have a college experience. And so he gave it up. And I'm wondering now, as things have accelerated, because I look around at some of the kids who are doing it, my, my, my friend's kids are in that age range, and that's all they know. They're yeah. in some cases they're not even allowed to play other sports, and in some cases you can't even play for the school team unless you play on the coach's travel team, which seems mm-hmm. very nefarious and incestuous. But I'm wondering if that if that pressure is what you're referring to, like it's just all they've known. It becomes their identity. It's not even a passion anymore. They're just kind of just fumbling through, and and the, oh by the way, you better perform really really well, or is it something else? Like I don't know what it is. Talk, talk a little bit about that if you would. Yeah. So I think. It, it kind of reminds me of an interview we did with Ty Buttrey, who used to pitch for the Los Angeles Angels and quit because he got burnt out with baseball. And he's mm-hmm. like, his best advice for youth athletes was just just be a kid. Right. And I think that kind of nails it on the head right there is that there's all these external pressures, whether it's from parents or from coaches, to be this kind of elite athlete. Not every kid's going to be an elite athlete. Very few I'm, will, actually. Yeah. And so trying to to putting bring it back to this notion of like go out there and have fun and play and whatever comes of it is fine you want to be good you want to compete you want to win but at the same time how do you step back and make it not seem like a job to these kids and make sure that like they're youth they're still trying to figure out what they love to do they're still trying to figure out who they are as individuals i think we all are even throughout our entire lives but especially as a kid you're really trying to figure out um what drives you, what motivates you kind of to be a better person every single day. And I think when you start putting all these pressure on kids who just are basically don't even know how to even function on a daily basis, sometimes um, it, it really kind of uh, crushes them and it, and it probably burns them out from wanting to play the game. Yeah. I've, I've heard similar stories about um, specifically basketball players who are so engulfed in the AAU um, process that when they get to professional level, whether it be G league or, or NBA or European, uh, they sign their contract. They don't know how to manage their own life. Um, Mm -hmm. you, obviously there's disastrous stories where people just blow through their finances and end up broke. But then there's other stories like they just, they don't know how to connect. Their relationships are terrible. They're in and out of marriages. And I'm, I'm wondering now, are we, are we stunting our kids growth? with with making sports a job at way too early an age i mean i think that's definitely something that we could be doing it's i mean when you think about all the pressures like i didn't know what i wanted to do when i was a young kid I'm I, still I was not sure i know what i want to do <laughs> yeah i was like really involved in politics but then i was also really involved in sports and so like i was trying to figure out what path i even wanted to take even when i got to college i still didn't feel like i knew exactly what route i wanted to take i don't think until i got into my mid-20s late 20s i was like okay this is kind of what i love to do and this is what i'm passionate about and so you think about like a 10 or 11 year old if you're just throwing them out into tournaments every weekend he 
he doesn't really know. Parents are telling him to go there. And so like, is the kid actually making the decision? Because right. um, I think about when I played baseball, I got burnt out by having a bad coach. There was a year that I had a really bad coach. I didn't find baseball fun anymore. And I told my dad I was going to quit. Mm. And then once I told my dad that, he didn't force me to play. Mm. He said, no, if this is what you want to do, do it. And I think I was like 12 or 13 years old. Yeah, I was going to ask how old you were. So re- reasonably aware at that at that age, you can you can reasonably say for yourself, I, I think I know what I like. Yeah. And I think and then what happened was when I got to high school, I wanted to play baseball again. And so I didn't play my eighth grade year because um, I was just burnt out of it. But then I still loved the game and I took mm-hmm. a break from it and I was able to come back and I made the freshman baseball team and I played all throughout high school. And I I, if I don't, I don't think if my dad forced me to play, I don't think I would have wanted to play baseball again. But my dad like was cognizant enough to be like, no, I'm not going to force him. Like I'll miss going watching him play, but I want him to make these decisions on his own. Yeah, I think it's really hard for parents to uh, set themselves aside a lot of times too, and and do what's best for their kid when they're the ones having to make sacrifice when the when the parents i mean including things like you know taking away tv you take away tv from mm-hmm. tv from your kid you're taking away from yourself <laughs> yeah. and and that's, yeah. that's a sacrifice right yeah. um but what i'm hearing there is that you had a a space enough in your home where you were allowed to express that right it was it was it was a warm welcoming environment where you didn't believe you were going to get judged or condescended if you did express that which i don't think a lot of kids have if they're being compelled into that environment i'm very proud for example Mm -hmm. of my my friend david who i asked that of you know of him and about his kids he says nope we will absolutely end it if the kids ever say i'm i don't like baseball anymore and i was like all right cool that's that's good you know like he's my friend i can talk to him like that um but i wonder about the vast majority of the the tens of thousands of other parents out there hundreds of thousands probably um who you know, maybe, maybe they're doing it out of rote repetition, you know, uh, maybe their own desires because they're mm-hmm. living vicariously through the children. Yeah. Maybe they just don't know any better. Uh, maybe they see some vision that, that the kid doesn't see, you know, so we, we want to be cognizant of that. And as parents, we want to make sure that we're continuing to provide an open avenue for our kids to give us feedback, even if it's in the opposite direction of what we think they need. Right. Yeah. So. And I think that's one that would, so when I coached travel ball, I had a parent who would yell at his son from behind home plate when he wasn't throwing well. Not okay. Um, yeah. And so he, his son joined the team and his, his son joined like halfway through the season and I didn't play him the first tournament because uh, I, I let him hit, but he wasn't playing the field. And so his dad came up to me and is like, he didn't join the team to just sit the bench. And I was like, that's great. But these kids have all been playing together. He needs to prove his way and make his way onto the team and play to play every day. Um, and then after that tournament, his dad forced him to quit. The kid didn't want to quit. He loved playing with the teammates that he was playing with. Wow. He was going to get more playing time, but, but his dad forced him to come up to me and quit. And he was like crying when he came up wow. to me. And I think that right there is like a moment where it's like, how good is that for the kid? Not when you're, not. he's not making the decision himself. He's being told by his dad that he has to go quit. And he went from travel ball team to travel ball team, um, just switching off, and he just couldn't find a place to stick because it, it was mostly because of his parents. Yeah. Uh, man, so many directions we could go with that. But I, I want to re- reroute it back onto what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. So you just undertook an assignment. Um, you and I were texting about it a few days ago. Well, it was a few weeks ago. But um, 
you you were looking for the next new column to write, and I said, I think it was actually on Twitter. I, I, yeah. I expressed this idea. I was like, hey, you know what you should do? You should ask people how they adjust to life after sports, right? When they, yeah. when they retire, like Austin, Austin did the same thing. He mm-hmm. he quit. Uh, he had a great career potentially ahead of him, but he was he was all mentally wrapped around the axle and couldn't think straight and had a big bag of problems. Um, this guy you just mentioned, you talked to from the angels, you know, same, same thing. He's, he's burned out. So when that's been your identity the whole time, <laughs> since you were, <laughs> you know, six, uh, yeah. now you're 24 or 28 or 30, or you, let's even take a highly successful person who maybe had a major league career, uh, and they're in their late thirties and they, and they retire successfully. Yeah. What do you, what are you discovering as you're talking to people like what's this column going to be about? Yeah, I think a lot of it is players being lost, especially. And so I, I think you're right. The, the people who do make it into their late 30s, they experience it, too, because your whole entire career in a blink of an eye, like even if it was a 10 plus year career, it's done. And you're in your mid 30s, late 30s, trying to figure right. out what to do next in life. Um, and I think it really hits the players who get released because mm-hmm. up through college, um, and then if you don't make it to the pros, like you've had this goal your entire life to make it to major league baseball, and then you just get cut. And I think it hits those guys more. Cause I, I think Austin talked about it on a podcast once with a, one of his other former teammates, Zach, who got released. I just remember walking with their bags out of the clubhouse going like, what now, what, what do I do now? And then yeah. none of the, the thing I'm realizing too, is none of the professional sports teams provide career transitions for athletes there's that is I mean, stunning yeah i think there's so at least i know in major league baseball i don't think there's many teams that provide career transitions for athletes some of them will allow like if they've been around the organization for a while they can coach with the team and things like that but when you get released I, someone drives you to the airport and you just go home especially like those players from the dominican republic or from the latin american countries they just send them on an airplane back to their their home countries and there's no career transition for a lot of these guys and you think about when athletes, especially not so much the college ones, because they could potentially get degrees and things like that. But the athletes who come straight out of high school or straight from Latin America at 16, 17 years old, they're trying to figure out how to be one, be an adult two, figure out how to navigate their way through professional baseball. And they don't even think about what they're going to do after baseball might end. And so I think that's another thing that I picked up when I started doing all this. It's like, you're going from every day being at home with your parents. You've never lived on your own. And now you're trying to, to make it in professional baseball as an 18 year old. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Um, I, I'm just, I'm putting my, the reason I'm kind of short for words is I'm putting myself in those people's shoes thinking like, how would that be? And, and all I can think is massively disappointing because chances are that if you got to any level where you're getting paid, you came from a pool where you were the best mm-hmm. among your peers. And then all of a sudden you're told, no, nope, not good enough. So it's yeah. massively disappointing. It's a it's a hell of a shot to the ego. Um, you're, you're probably not used to being broke because if you're used to, you know, parents supporting you or whatever, mm-hmm. you, I know, I know minor league baseball gets paid nothing. So you're probably getting some support from somewhere. And then it's all of a sudden it's like, well, now I got to find a job and I've never had a job because baseball is my identity for forever. Yeah. Um, and my bills just sort of magically got paid. And I'm betting because of those, that combination there, there's a ton of fear. 
mm-hmm. right? Like lots and lots of fear, um, as well as a grieving and loss process, because you got to let go yeah. of this this thing that was was so tightly wound to who you were as an individual is now just poof gone. So there's a lot going on there. I could probably appreciate why there's no transition programs because they're very expensive. There's yeah. thousands of people who, you know, I mean, if you can't even afford to pay your, your minor league players a living wage, you're probably not going to wrap them around with other resources. Um, so I, I, get, I understand that. I don't like it, but I understand it. Um, I mean, we don't even provide transition services for our military veterans. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, yeah. of course, base, baseball isn't going to do that. Um, but I guess the question now is, like, what do we do about it? And, you know, major league universities focused on the youth, making sure that they're mentally prepared for the game and for life. Uh, but it sounds like there's a, an overwhelming adult population that probably needs this, too. Yeah, I think there's a big gap there. And it's it's hard. That's what I'm trying. So I got in touch with this uh professor who wound up doing his dissertation on career transitions for baseball players. And so I'm starting to go through his study and get an idea of what can be done kind of to, to do that. And so one of the sections, once I dive into that part of the article, we'll look at career transitions for baseball players and I'll try to flesh out like some of the steps that could possibly be taken. But I think a lot's unknown at this point um, on what could be done. Um, I, I think when I talked, when we interviewed Ty Buttry for the, the MLU podcast, he talked a lot about like, when he was playing baseball, the reason he quit was because he just didn't love baseball. That wasn't his path. He's like, I played for years from when I was a kid and I just did not love the game. He goes, but I, I saw it as a career path or a career trajectory. And then he was like, when I finally quit, I realized I love doing the stuff on social media. I love with my wife and being able to do those things and marketing and, uh, teaching communication skills. And he said, I think he said at one point he went to school to try to be a veterinarian while he was playing baseball because he loves animals. And so like, he was trying to find these things that he was passionate about. And a lot of the times, I think these players get sucked into baseball their entire career. So they don't even think about the things that they might love outside of the game. Yeah, because they're th- just so hyper-focused on the sport. Yeah, I'm thinking about the parallels to um, non-sports people. So I think that that there's a lot of really rich content to be drawn from this conversation and, and general generally applied to different career paths. So thinking about, uh, I got a really good friend who works in advertising and marketing. He's very good at what he does. He's really intelligent, very friendly. There's no flaws with the dude. He's probably had five or six jobs, uh, like real, actual, honest to goodness career jobs where he could have stayed where he was and retired in the last twelve years. Like so you're mm-hmm. talking about a job every two years, and I, and I know he likes what he does, um, but that's just—he's never deviated. That was his path from like undergrad. Like I'm yeah. going to go into advertising, marketing, and um, and he's doing it. And it's like, why can't you stay put? And I don't know. Maybe maybe that's I, I start out in journalism, public relations, so I sort of understand that that realm. And it's a little, it's it's cutthroat, and not all the agencies treat people well. So there's that aspect. A lot of it's sales too, but, um, but it's like, man, are, I wonder if you'd be happier being an educator, you know, or like yeah. going to nursing school or like something else. And I think that's a real tell when people start thinking about, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to school again, 
in the middle of my current career. It's like, oh, it's mm-hmm. you're not happy. And then you go back and go, well, why aren't you happy? It's probably because you never really conscientiously thought about where you wanted to end up. And I think that's one of the, the miseries of undergraduate education is we, we tell kids in high school, pick a major. Yeah. Right. And then you go through this four years of college. Maybe you have some second guessing. I, I certainly changed majors twice. It took me five and a half years to get out. Um, started a chemical engineering, went to journalism. Uh, <laughs> sorry, went to logistics, which is in business, then went to journalism. And uh, the whole time I was like, I just like being around people. I should be an event planner. That didn't yeah. work. Um, here I am, though. I'm, I, I wasn't wrong. I'm with people, right? Doing mm-hmm. counseling and psychotherapy. But it wasn't until grad school that it clicked. And, I, uh, and they said, you know, where do you want to end up? Pick the degree that's going to get you there. Not pick the yeah. degree and then figure out in your senior year what job you want. So I think we need – I think a lot of this to, – to stop it, you know, yes, we need to address the people who are currently in existential crisis trying to figure out who they are. But I think what we need to do is we need to do better – at our youth, starting like eighth grade, you know, middle school, be like, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm noticing more and more people coming into the counseling clinic who just have either never been asked that question or the last time they were asked it was when they were like six years old. And they're miserable. They don't know what they're doing. They're, they've got golden handcuffs on them to their current career. Um, their marriages are falling apart because they're unhappy the 50 hours a week they spend away from the home. Yeah. And I think we can change all that by simply saying – where do you want to be now? What path is going to get you there instead of, Hey, pick a path. And then, uh, maybe along the way you'll stumble into something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a lot too, is trying. I think one thing that's important too, when you think about youth is teaching them the the ability to be, find ways to be happy with themselves and then figuring everything out from there. Because if you try to seek out happiness in baseball, but you're, if your success and failure is going to drive your happiness. So if you're successful and have a great day, you're probably, when you perform, you go three for three with a home run or whatever, you're probably going to be happy. And, but if you go zero for four with four strikeouts, next thing you know, your whole entire mood's down. And I think that Zach, who was a Diamondbacks prospect that came on the MLB podcast, he talked about that. He goes, my successes and failures in the game were driving my daily attitudes and my mm. emotions. And he was, I didn't know better. He's like, all I knew was baseball. And I thought my happiness was going to be driven based on my performances during the game. You know, that's not unlike what we're seeing in social media. And there's been lots written on that. Um, Jonathan Heights work is very, very good. H A I D T mm-hmm. if anybody's interested. Um, but it's, it's the, and then of course the, the center for humane technology has talked about this, the, the movie, yeah. um, uh, the, the, the social dilemma has cap, captured this, but it's the idea of the dopamine hit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except you're just getting yeah. the dopamine hit, um, by an at bat by at bat basis, or she's God forbid you're a relief pitcher and you don't get to throw for three days after a blown save. <laughs> um, and it, and it affects regular life, right? You got, we, we tell people pull themselves off social media. Well, what are we going to tell them? Pull, pull yourself out of your career for, for a few weeks. And now we're seeing it. I mean, yeah. um, people are taking hiatuses from their from their professional careers. Um, but what are you doing with the hiatus? Are you just like reflecting to go back into the same chaotic mm-hmm. environment that you just left? Uh, you know, I don't know that that's, that's accurate or, you know, an accurate prescription. So to your point about getting kids to know who they are, that's how you withstand all that um, – turbulence you know if, if, yeah. if you know who you are at the end of the day and you're secure in yourself and uh then you can tolerate the over fours um mm-hmm. you can tolerate the sale that didn't go through you can tolerate the deal that went went sideways you go well you know it's not the end of the world 
uh, you know, money isn't everything. Um, I will rebuild. I have, I have my, my anchoring in my faith and my, my spiritual orientation, um, uh, nature, my family, whatever it is. Right. And, and we can hold more loosely to the temporary things that come and go like individual performances. Um, yeah, it's a little bit longer conversation, but, you know, back to the transition stuff, what's, um, I guess what's something that, that we can take from what you're experiencing now with these conversations you're having and, and give it to the listening audience. If they may be going through a transition where they're questioning their, their role in life, what's, what's a, an uplifting, inspiring, encouraging message? Yeah, I think. So I kind of went through it a little bit too, trying because trying to figure out what I love to do. And I think for me was finding that creative outlet with the writing and being able to do something on the side that I really enjoy and love. And so when I get off of my nine to five job, which I it's not that I don't love my nine to five job. It's just sometimes you get burnt out and you're just like that. But just having that creative outlet where I could just on a Wednesday night, sit down, like light a candle, put some music on and just write about things that I'm passionate about and care about that creative outlet brought me so much more joy. And that's what I noticed. You really, you really light a candle. Yeah, I do. It's it's adorable. I know, right? It's a winter candle. Oh, I got seasonal ones. So every season. Just one though. You don't, you don't light many, like you're not not building a a room full of candles. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to conserve electricity. Um, yeah. What's it? What smell is it right now? Uh, the one right now is kind of like a winter pine type smell. Oh, I love that. I've got that right now in my office. Actually, it's on the warmer. Yeah. Um, see, dude's being sensitive. We can be masculine. <laughs> uh, so variety is what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. Is it? You picked up the guitar too recently. Yeah. A so of years back. the other two, yeah, the other two things are like playing music and being outdoors that I'm passionate about as well. Yeah. And so I try to make sure I find time to do both of those just because they're things that bring me joy and I want to be able to do things that I, I love. I, I want to ask this, is, is it unfair to think that maybe you could, a person, not you, any person could make their entire life, give or take, about the joy or... Is that too far of a reach? Because I'm thinking you could take the things that bring you joy now, like writing and playing music and listening to music, and do them all the time. Or does that like turn it into a career and then all of a sudden it's not fun anymore? Yeah, it's what I kind of get worried about with the writing. Is if I all of a sudden it starts feeling like a job, is it really an out creative outlet for me anymore? Um, and so that's why I've tried to like space out the time and be able to say when I have the the mindset where I feel like I could be creative and put something together, I take the time to write, but I always get worried that, um, if I start doing it too much or you start getting paid for it, or you have to start like meeting deadlines, like does that all of a sudden take a of the joy away from all of it? Uh, having gone through that recently with some of the stuff that I'm doing, um, I had to shift perspective. Mm-hmm. And I and I was reminded of a of a conversation I had on somebody else's podcast a few years ago, where this gal asked me, um, uh, "With all the stuff you do, where do you find time for your hobbies?" or something something like that. And, it, and yeah. it floored me. I, like I I'd never considered that. And I I had to pause and really collect my thoughts. And the answer I think surprised me because my answer was. It's all hobby. 
to me. Mm-hmm. And and I had to I sat on that for weeks. It was not an inaccurate answer. It was very very true. But I didn't view anything as an obligation. Nothing was a yeah. chore to me, uh, except for my my log notes. I hate doing log notes, and I'll probably that'll probably never change. Um, but that's such an infinitesimal percentage of what I, constitutes my day. And and I think at the end of it, when I was done exploring this, where I really where I really learned to embrace it was I chose all this, mm-hmm. which yeah. means that if anything becomes unpleasant or feels like a chore. I got to choose something else. And, yeah. and, and there's no, and I, I really, really, I examine this pretty carefully, I think. So let's take something that generates revenue to pay my bills. Uh, my job, for example, and it's a little different because I run the company, but I've worked many, many jobs in my day. Let's, let's pretend I'm in retail, right? And retail's just eating my, my lunch. It, it's sucking my soul, Right. And I don't want to fold shirts anymore, and I don't want to. I don't want to run the Z tape off the cash register at the end of the day. And um, well, I got to choose something else that's going to get me money to pay my bills. It's still a choice, right? So as long as I stand on that choice, it puts me in charge. I'm not. I'm not victim to the circumstance. I get to decide my own my own fate. Now transitions yeah. are uncomfortable, though, and and I think that's that's part of the conversation that we're trying to have here to bring light to people is how do we push through the discomfort of the transition such that we put ourselves back in charge of our own life again. What was, what was your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think making your own choice was one of the biggest things for me, but I, I think what I had to do was step back. I kind of reflected on what gave me purpose and what, what I was passionate about. Um, And then I tried to define what the things that I value the most in life are. Um, And to me, that's helping people finding ways to, um, develop connections with people. That's what I love most about my current job and my roles is I get to develop relationships with people and hopefully try to find people who are like-minded. And um, we try to find a way to com- come together for the collective good and help others. And I was like, okay, I want to make sure that everything that I do, no matter where I work, I'm reflecting on what I value and that what I'm doing makes me feel like this is why I'm doing it. Um, and I think that was the biggest thing for me was just taking that step back and being like, okay, I need to know what my purpose is and what I, what gives me purpose and kind of figure out how do I go from there? It requires a great deal of humility and vulnerability to be able to say, maybe I was wrong. And, and even if you're not wrong, sometimes seasons change too. You just, mm-hmm. you know, fall out of love with things that used to drive you, for example. And that's okay. Like, you know, yeah. we evolve and we change personalities as people and, and that's good. And, and I think growth is positive and especially if we're modeling it well. So I'm hearing a theme of constant evaluation um, while still being anchored. It's not like you quit your job and then decided, right? You still, you still yeah. need to pay the rent. Um, so you keep working and, you, but you hold it loosely and the listening audience can't see this. Maybe if you're watching on YouTube, you can see, but I'm holding <laughs> like my hand out away from me. And, you know, if I picture something in my hand, like it's my job but it's not my identity. Um, yeah. and I'm going to keep working this job because it's getting me where I need to be. Um, while I'm figuring out where I actually want to be, like mm-hmm. you can do both. It's not, it's not binary. Um, one thing I, I talk about pretty frequently and I, I think I have a YouTube video about it, is, um, the idea of like, I am, I do have a YouTube video about it. Um, it, the I am in English sounds very permanent. There's I am in other languages that there's two different versions. There's like permanent and temporary. But when we say I am 
a health policy guy. It sounds sounds like mm-hmm. that's an immutable character, logical trait that will never go away. And it's like you came out of the womb that way. It's, so to yeah. question it is like to question <laughs> self. It's like that's not true at all. It's just something you do. So this is why people end up having midlife crises when they face retirement. It's like I don't know who I am without my accountant practice, you know, or whatever it is. Like we could be lots of things. Um, and that's what I invite people to do too is look at – and maybe this is useful to your audience when you, when you write this thing is – Look at the entirety of a human being. Look at all the things that are possible. Look at all the things you could quote unquote be, right? You can you could be dad, husband, mm-hmm. baseball player, uh, journalist, musician, author, uh, you know, whatever it is, you can be all these things and they're not mutually exclusive, meaning you don't have to have one and not the others. You can do it all. And and I think that invites a, a world of possibility. I think that's very encouraging. It's very inspiring to help people examine all that they could be. Now it's also terrifying. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I think that's comes to reminding people too. It's, it's normal and okay to have self doubt and wonder and and try to figure out like, what do I want to do? Like just because you're questioning it doesn't mean that you're failing or that every, everything's wrong. Totally. It's okay to have that and be like, okay, what do I really want to do? What do I really care about? And but we get all these pressures from society to look a certain way, feel a certain way. We should know what we want to do by X age, and we should be. And and there's like this overwhelming or overarching thing that we need to be perfect in everything that we do. Yeah. And I think a lot of it's like it's okay not to be perfect, and it's okay to not know right in this moment exactly what you want to do. And it's okay not to compare. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I know we can't really avoid comparison because we're always looking for guardrails to know if we're if we're on track. Right. But but. Yeah. When we start to get sucked into, especially social media, where we're comparing ourselves, uh, all of ourselves, <laughs> to, uh, to, to other people who may not actually accurately be representing themselves online or to other people who are only showing us uh, the good times or people who are constantly complaining. You're like, well, at least I'm not that person. Right? Um, well, what it does is it serves as a distraction from self. And one of the most brilliant things I've seen posted recently was by our marketing guy, Kevin Berry who said mm. your social media experience doesn't have to be somebody else's. I was like, that yeah. is so brilliant. And I was imprisoning myself. And I knew right at that moment I was doing it. Cause I was like, I was trying to be like certain other people. I was like, <laughs> no, I can just be me. Um, yeah. and you know, funny thing when you, when you become authentic, uh, people really gravitate to that. Yeah. But it requires letting go of the idea that you're, you're doing this performance for somebody. It's mm-hmm. like, well, are you sure anybody's even watching? First of all, <laughs> and yeah. then do 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 their opinions matter? You know, do your parents really? You know, do your parents' opinions matter when you're 32 and you're like, <laughs> you were trying to pick a career? It's like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. They're not living <laughs> your life, you know. Yeah, and I think that goes back to like all the external voices trying to tell you what to do, and especially when you're trying to make decisions and things like that, you got all these external pressures and all these external voices trying to, and you think that you have to live up to those. And I think a lot of it's, it's realizing when you're making decisions that you're trying to make the best informed decision is not always going to mean it's a successful decision, but it's okay to reach out to people and it's okay to take their advice and not take their advice. And ultimately you have to just make sure that what you're doing is the, is the right route for you. Yeah, and you're like, gonna make mistakes along the way. Yeah, <laughs> you're saying you're sounding like Chris Young with the "I hear voices." Um, <laughs> what's what's the uh, what's the thrust of this particular article? I'm so fascinated by this. What what are you gonna do with this? What do you want people to take away, read into? Is it gonna be like, "Hey, this thing is happening," 
or is it like, hey, here's it's happening and here's how to fix it, or is it just a like we need to we need to come together on this issue? Like, what's the what's the angle? I think my well, I think my main goal is going to be is like just letting people know that they're not alone mm-hmm. and that there's people who are in higher roles and you think that they have everything because they're this professional athlete. No, they go through the exact same thing that you are in your daily job that you're doing. And I think that's the key thing that I want to get to is like, I want to find an, so I'm trying to interview an athlete who's currently playing someone who recently retired and someone who retired maybe 10 plus years ago. And just to highlight the different routes that everybody's taking. And um, just to, to paint a picture on the human side of the game and also that, they're relatable. They're humans. And um, just because you're going through, it doesn't mean there aren't other people on that same journey as you trying to find their identity. I like that. And uh, I'm a big fan of spirituality, knowing how you uh, root yourself in the ground. And if there's some sort of doctrine or scripture that informs how you navigate life is very, very useful. Um, I, 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 I'm Christian. I follow Jesus the best I can. I kind of wear that on my sleeve. I don't try to throw it in anybody's face, but it's useful when I when I reference things because to me uh, the Bible is very um, instructive because Jesus talked about um, being pruned right in a, in a garden like so you have you have uh, you have vines that grow that give give fruit to make wine for example they're called grapes and uh, if you if you look at a a vintner trimming the vines in the garden they'll trim off vines that produce fruit. And the, to the casual observer, you're like, why would you do that? You can make more wine. You get more juice, right? But yeah. if you ask the vintner, the vintner says, well, not all vines are going to give great fruit. And if you have too many, it diminishes the quality of what you do get. So if you, you, know, if you want high quality wine, you do have to trim some otherwise fruit-bearing branches. And I had a moment several years ago when this – this analogy was presented to me. And at that time I burst into tears and I broke down because I realized that God was pruning things in my life that had long served me. One of which was baseball. Mm -hmm. And at that particular juncture, we had just opened Zephyr. Um, Elijah had just been born. Uh, so this is more than six years ago now. And I realized I couldn't go out, you know, cavorting on Sundays in the adult rec league anymore. <laughs> uh, I did. <laughs> I plowed right through that stop sign. <laughs> but it it made me realize that when seasons change, sometimes you have to you have to take the trimmers to things that they're still bringing you joy, they're still bringing you value, but they're they're interfering with the ultimate value and joy that could be brought and ultimately mm-hmm. your productivity that you're going to bring to the rest of society. So I, I think that's a useful metaphor for life transitions it's like you don't necessarily have to give it all up altogether and if you do because Sundays are now used for family time and not going to the baseball field you know twisting your knees at 43 years old <laughs> hypothetically speaking um that's somebody else that's, that's somebody else yeah it's yeah. definitely not me with my back that was hurting every week and being sore for six days after playing three innings um, <laughs> then you can let go and put it to bed knowing that Again, it's a cho- it's a choice. It's a decision you yeah. make to exchange one thing for another, mm-hmm. and then to embrace that next thing. And guess what? That next thing it's going to have a season too. So as much as I love my family, uh, I'm raising my children to leave, which is yeah. very very hard for most parents to understand. And uh, when they get to adulthood, 
I got to let them go and I will still play a role in their life, but it will just look different and something else will come in. So learning to be non-attached, learning to appreciate life, learning to be very humble and grateful uh, can ease in those transitions, I think. It it doesn't have to be this uh, angst-ridden, consternation-filled experience that I think a lot of people go through. But I understand why they would be, especially if they they aren't in their 40s and, you know, spend a half a career uh, doing this kind of thing, you know, just psychological examination. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's I I'd stop playing baseball, too. And my outlet to still stay in baseball was writing. And so <laughs> it kept me back back in the game. And yes, it's not playing anymore, but it keeps me involved in the game. It gets me opportunities to kind of interact with different athletes. And so I found joy out of that. Yeah, I didn't even think that coaching my kids uh, was going to be that substitute. It literally just clicked right now. I can't believe I missed that. Yeah, I can't yeah. believe I missed that. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I feel like I'm the Godfather. It's like every time I try to get out, they drag me back mm-hmm. in. <laughs> I'm never going to leave baseball. Yeah, uh, man, this is a good conversation. I'm I'm really glad we had. It. I feel like we covered a lot of uh, really good topics in a very short period of time. It's only been 45 yeah. minutes, but it seems like uh, it's probably been an hour and a half. Um, so one thing that I'm trying to do, uh, with, uh, podcasts lately is have a, a culminating, uh, you know, statement at the end. Usually when we end sessions in counseling, uh, I ask what, what's one thing that the the patient is taking away, something that jumps out at them, something they didn't know, something they'll use. I'm going to ask you, what's one thing you want to leave the audience with? What do you think is one thing they should take away from this conversation? Yeah, I think the the main thing that I always try to hit home and a lot of what I do is just letting people know that they're not alone, that yes, they're on this journey, but that there's a bunch of people out there that are going through the same thing um, and just be able to be okay with being yourself and it's okay to have self-doubt and on your journey of whatever dream that you're chasing and know that it's going to come with positives and negatives. Be yourself. Everybody else is taken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jared Perkins, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate your time. Uh, appreciate your friendship. And um, it's always in- encouraging to see people that I you know, respect doing new cool things. And I look forward to future collaborations through MLU. I think there's a lot of really cool potential there, uh, working with youth and you know, teaching them to, to be better human beings and hopefully make Earth better. So. Um, On behalf of the Noggin Notes family and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.